The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Today's scripture reading is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's our scripture for today. You guys ready? All right, let's do this. Get my timer going. As soon as it's six, it's six hours and 20 minutes, I'm good. All right. Well, today's message um, is entitled, The Mental Imagery That Makes the Future. So I have, uh, I have watched quite a few sci-fi movies over the last few years uh, that were all set in the future. So I think uh, Blade Runner 2049 is providing the most the freshest set of images to come to my mind at this time. And if we had a little, do we have an image for that one somewhere? We do somewhere. But anyway, at some random point, Blade Runner's going to pop up. There we go. There we go. I need that just to make some analogies here. But, um, um, and I think for the first time in my movie-watching life, I, have been conscious, I was consciously more aware of some similar trends in most of the recent films of that genre. Of course, you know, um, AI, artificial intelligence, is always a theme in one form or another. Flying cars is pretty much a given. Uh, virtual billboards, um, retina scans. Um, but on this occasion, more importantly than the similarity of technological assumptions, I was for the first time sensitive to several assumptions being depicted in these movies in regards to how human society would be in the future. And a few of those assumptions that stood out to me are these. I noticed without a doubt that women are often, uh, for the most part, or at least a class of them, are depicted as hypersexual, and the cultural acceptance of it is more prominent and deliberate. Hence, the underlying assumption in these movies that the dark world of elevated, the elevated priority of sexuality and the exploitation of women not only continues, apparently, uh, in the future, but is even more prolific and dominant in the society. This is clearly depicted in Blade Runner 2049. Um, I also noticed that socioeconomic class division is clear and has in the future regressed even further into two separate classes of people, one suppressing and subjugating the other. I think of how clearly this was depicted in the sci-fi movie The Elysium. I also noticed that the dehumanization of one class of people seems to continue in the future, yet the future introduces AI and clones as a new subclass to the plot to play the victims of such dehumanization. It also seems depicted in these movies that we have apparently all consumed all of our natural resources, and this situation is used to depict a manipulation and control of one class of people over the other, pushing humanity into a crazed mode of survival devoid of all ethics, where the value of human life is trivial in comparison to the value of those resources. This concept is clearly depicted in the movie Mad Max, if you've seen that one. Without a doubt, violence and war is depicted as the assumed way of life in these movies, with rebellion and imminent war against tyranny from previous subjugation, the assumed narrative and backdrop any given story is set within. This is depicted in a range of narratives from Hunger Games to something as familiar to us as Star Wars. So in this art form, the directors, 
the producers and the writers are consciously or unconsciously depicting the assumed trajectory of human society. They are providing the mental imagery for an imagined future. And we as a culture collectively share in this depicted art as we sit there and watch. Unconsciously, we are agreeing with the possibility of such a trajectory. With no sharp reaction, as long as it aligns with what we know of history and as it aligns to some degree of our own collected assumptions. We gradually, image by image, movie by movie, assimilate their depictions into our own mental catalogue of imagery, and over time it becomes part of a culture's collective imagination. And at an even deeper level, this imagery can mold into an array of culturally accepted assumptions about the future. Therefore, in a very real sense, mental imagery plays a part or has the power at least to help shape the future. I want to argue that this projecting of one's mental imagery regarding the future appears to be exactly what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He is purposefully reimagining the future in his statements and providing the mental imagery to do so. And more importantly, he affirms his confidence to his imagery of the future by every one of his preceding actions in the Gospels. Actions that lead him ultimately to embrace a horrible and torturous death at the hands of the war machine that was Rome. And what I hope to convey to you today is my firm conviction that we who swear allegiance to Jesus as King are to consume, articulate, creatively produce from, and ultimately live lives, and if necessary, die out of a commitment to the mental imagery of the future that Jesus provided. For the mental imagery that he provided must be the future that comes to be, lest we in the continued trajectory of history walk repeatedly down the path of violence, suffering, hatred, and endless war. When we examine the scene of Jesus in this moment of the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, of this beatitude, if we examine it with intellectual honesty, when we look at it and what he says and to whom he says it, and the specific language he uses, we will see why I bring up this whole theme of about the future. We must again, however, start as there's our continued practice from this platform, by repeatedly removing the unfortunate century-old infection of Greek Platonic thinking that has infused the term the kingdom of heaven with images of a non-bodily afterlife, images of a non-physical celestial type um, image of a place that we are destined to be after the future. That is not what the kingdom of heaven is referring to. Rather, we must reconnect the term the kingdom of heaven back to its Hebrew context of a very real earthbound, politically impacting kingdom that is coming into our realm from God's realm. The kingdom of heaven is God's reign. It is God's will from the realm where God is already king. However, once we get the concept behind the word kingdom of heaven, of which the whole sermon, in fact, the whole gospel is infused with, once we get that all fixed, with all its correct earth and history-bound political context, we are still left with the question in this whole Sermon on the Mount of the unreality of what Jesus says. Because history has proven to Jesus' original hearers that the meek do not inherit the earth. 
No, the strong inherit the earth. Those with larger, dominant militaries inherit the earth. The liar, the cheat, the manipulative inherit the earth. And that fact is beyond his immediate hearer's ability to deny. They were themselves uh, the descendants of a people who had been the victims of, of more than five powerful empires, all less meek than themselves, that could be argued. And the very day that they sat listening to this Sermon on the Mount, they were under Roman occupation. The, the last great rebellion that the Jews listening to Jesus had, um, had been underneath was the Maccabean dynasty. It had, it had after a short-lived moment of hope and national glory, had ended hopelessly in a depressing second season of Game of Thrones-like tragedy. Josh laughs for the second time <laughs> on that one. Those who mourned had not been comforted. No, they just kept on mourning, and their children mourned after them. Those who had shown mercy had lived to, to regret it. Those who had tried to make peace were not called anything. They were trampled underfoot by the more powerful, made a spectacle of to crush hope, and they were forgotten. That is simply the factual reality of those that were hearing Jesus' words. Don't get it wrong. There was no naive spiritual amens thrown up in Jesus' sermon amongst the religiously trained people. No, this was a nation of subjugated and humiliated people. If you picture their faces while reading the Sermon on the Mount in this moment, do not think of modern-day evangelicals sitting in pews. Think of the faces of a war-torn country living in its streets after defeat by a more powerful nation. So if the kingdom of heaven is not synonymous with what we have conceived of heaven over the last 500 years as a non-physical place that we go after death, if it's not that, and it's also not historical or contextual reality to those who were hearing it at the time, and if it's also not some secretly unlocked allegorical wisdom to find inner peace and um, in denial of the sad and evil state of the world is in, if it's not that, then what the heck is it? It is, as I'm arguing, it was mental imagery describing the future. And that future was starting to break in right then and there with every syllable that Jesus spoke. So much so that it might be helpful to read some of Jesus' statements replacing the word, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God with one of its primary aspects. So instead of Jesus seeing Jesus enter the scene in Matthew's gospel, beginning his ministry with the proclamation, repent for the kingdom of heavens is drawn near, to instead hear him say, repent for the future has drawn near. The kingdom of God is the future. This, I believe, is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is speaking that which will be dismissed in its own time, in its own moment, for it was not what had been. But like a director, like a screenwriter, like a movie maker, he is projecting his mental imagery of the future. He is reimagining the future to his, his current hearers. So what I want to do is I want to examine one of the most controversial beatitudes, how blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I want to examine it to further illustrate this concept of how Jesus projects the imagery that makes the future. 
by seeing how the beatitude is predominantly received in three different cultural time settings. How it was, is, and should be received in the mental imagery of the past, the present, and the future. So to begin with, how the beatitude was heard within the mental imagery of the past. We've already touched on this, but in the pronouncement of this beatitude to its original hearers, we must see the war of imagery that must have been happening inside the the hearers' minds. The historical imagery from which they came, the cultural imagery of the context in which they sat, and the mental imagery that fueled the current hearers' concept of the future was that of war. All they knew was war. And not just them in particular, but all of mankind to that point had known nothing but a world that was birthed and shaped by war, either as um, subjected or subjugator. War was the mental imagery of the past, and therefore it dominated their imagination of the future. And because of their lack of imagination for anything other than what they had known, this beatitude to the majority of its original hearers was either rejected or unconsciously filtered and reinterpreted because the mental imagery of the future, if it made room for the word peace at all, it was peace through war. Because that's how peace had always been made and defined, by successfully subjugating your enemies. The problem is with that is it always leaves someone in subjugation who is crying out for justice and retaliation. And and because of that, the cycle of vengeance through war always resurfaces. However, it is more likely rejected altogether by his immediate hearers, for Jesus left no room for reinterpretation. For later in the Sermon on the Mount, he further exposits this beatitude a little, so that there was no room for misunderstanding the way he was saying that peace was to be achieved. He says later in Matthew 5, 43-45, you have, heard that it has been, sorry, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Whereas I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you may become sons of your father in the heavens. For he makes his son to rise on the wicked and the good and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. If you pay attention to the, the similarity of language there, there's a, Matthew is making connection with blessed are the peacemakers for those who should be called the sons of God. And here in, in, um, in you should love your neighbors yourself, he's saying this uh, also tying in the same, you shall be called your father, sons of your father in heaven. He wants us to deliberately connect the two. The, collect, the collective imagination of the past of Jesus' original hearers lacked the mental imagery to process such a revolutionary concept of such a means of making peace. And so it was rejected along with he who declared it. And the rest is history, which brings us to our next point. How this beatitude is heard within the mental imagery of the present in our own day. And I have to say it is most heartbreaking that there is very little difference in moving from the collective imagination receiving this beatitude in the past to the present. For the myth of peace through war continues to fuel our imagination. What makes it so much more devastating, however, is that though that the church has in the past few centuries not only aided, 
but actually fueled the wrong mental imagery of the future and in turn has left devastating assumptions and unchallenged and gave legitimacy even to their tragic conclusions. The church's imagery has colluded with the way of making peace of the twisted world of empires that it came from. From Constantine waging war in the name of the cross to the reasoning that justified the horror of what which was the Crusades, to the continuation today of the evangelical church at large, blessing the war of the empires that it sits within. How tragically opposite that is of the church's prophetic calling. Hence, how blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, has been relegated by a horrible, twisted reading of Scripture to some far-off future that stands, unfortunately, on the other side of centuries and centuries of more God-sponsored war. In fact, so twisted is this eschatology of today, it even sees that war as necessary. Hal Lindsey is, one of, is an author of a myriad of popular books in the 70s, such as The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, he, amongst other authors, had a massive influence on the shaping the mental imagery of the future upon the American evangelical imagination. And in his twisted assumptions, war is part of a God-ordained means of moving history to its climax. I'm just going to read several quotes out of, out of his book that, that heavily influenced um, the 70s. And some of you may have been heavily influenced by as well. To quote Hal Lindsey, he says this, The greatest threat to freedom in the world peace today is, is, is Islamic fundamentalism. Tragically, the world's sole remaining superpower for the moment, the United States, has responded to this monumental threat by embarking on a suicidal demilitarization process of unprecedented portions. Like the scriptures warn, the West is blithely saying, peace and safety. Another quote. As the Bible tells us, the dispute over Jerusalem and Israel's borders will never be settled by any peace agreements nor any whiz-band diplomatic breakthrough. And lastly, this is Lindsay's a part of Lindsay's interpretation of Daniel 11. This will be the sign that immediately preceding the Russian-led Islamic invasion of Israel at the time of the end of the King of the South, the Muslim Confederacy will engage him, the false prophet of Israel, in battle. And the king of the north, Russia, will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and the great fleet of ships. He, the Russian commander, will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon, Jordan, will be delivered from his hand. It's from Hal Lindsay, the great planet Earth. These are just samples of what, when is closely examined is a hyper-violent, war-obsessed, nationalistic, racially-fueled eschatology. And this is the eschatology that fueled the American imagination of the 70s and subsequent generations regarding the future. This eschatology embedded the assumption in our collective imagination that war and more war is inevitable. And in fact, it, is a and in fact, it would be a necessary means to an end. There was no room, no framework, no mental imagery, no imagination in this eschatology to hear the term, how blissful the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God.
directly after Jesus projects his mental imagery in the, um, of the future in the Beatitudes, he says to those who are his people, his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. Maybe to use less familiar language and to stay in this chain of thought, you might, we might hear him saying this instead. You are those who are to reimagine the future from what the world has always known. You are those who need to lead the nations out of this hell-bent cycle of seeing war as the only mental imagery of the future. We are to give them different imagery than what we see on the news today. If we could throw up the slide, sorry. Which brings me to my third and final most important point. How is this beatitude, how must it be heard within the mental imagery of the future? And when I say future, I mean starting now, not in the far off future. I say how it must be heard because the future has not been written yet. And our vocation as the church, as salt and light, as a city on display, is to reimagine the future, to proclaim and project the right mental imagery of the future. We are not sitting, but we are not sitting around fancifully making that imagery up, prancing around with daisies all singing songs of peace in denial of the harsh and ugly reality in which we live and breathe. No, we are not skip, nor are we skipping down our seclusive road of safety in the West and in in our prosperity, leaving it up to some fate for the rest of the poverty-stricken world to sort out so we can sit back uninvolved and watch it all unfold. No, we are to be in the midst of culture creatively proclaiming that which was given to us. We are to give to the world the mental imagery of the future that we were given to steward. So what is that imagery? It is many beautiful things weaved in and out of the narrative of Scripture that we must live and breathe in. It is Isaiah. And it shall happen in the future of the days the mountains of the house of Yahweh shall be established. It will be among the highest of the mountains, and it shall be raised from the hills. All of the nations shall travel to him. Many people shall come, and they shall say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and may he teach us part of his ways. And let us walk in his paths. For instruction shall go out from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and he shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares <coughs> and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up a sword against nation and they shall not learn war again. It is Paul. There can be neither Judean nor Greek. There can be neither slave nor freeman. There cannot be male and female, for you are all one in the anointed one, Jesus. And it is Jesus. How blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We, as a prophetic voice, must proclaim the mental imagery of the future for this beatitude to be heard correctly in our culture. 
I emphasize in my title, however, that the mental imagery, it is the mental imagery that makes the future. Jesus prophetically proclaimed imagery of a reimagined future, which puts him in the same vein as the prophets. And he bore persecution for that reimagined future, even to the point that it cost him his life, which again puts him in the same vein as the prophets. However, it is in Jesus' resurrection that he made his proclaimed imagery more than just an imagined future, but the imagery that makes the future. Let's put up the picture of, a Roman Catholic picture of, uh, of doubting Thomas after the resurrection where he's sticking his hands into his side. I bring this one image up, which is just of many of the resurrection, to make this point. The seeming randomness of the instances recorded after Jesus' resurrection. Has anyone noticed that as you flip through the Gospels' narratives, after Jesus is raised from the dead, you've got all of his work, and then really there's maybe a page, a chapter, two chapters, that talk about anything about the resurrection. I mean, you have this scene that mentioned with Mary when she thinks he's the gardener. You have this strange yet moving scene in John of Jesus cooking fish on the beach and Peter jumping out of the boat half naked. You have Jesus unrecognized in the book of Luke walking down the road of Emmaus, explaining to the two disciples that these things had to happen. You have the scene in John 20, 21, where it says, Jesus came and stood in the midst and says to them, peace to you. And saying this, he showed them both his hands and his side. So Jesus again said to them, peace to you. In the midst of the, seeming, of the seeming randomness of these short scenes and ends to the gospel narrative after the resurrection, however, there is one massive, world-changing, future-making statement being made by what is missing in all of them. What's missing? Vengeance. Jesus is betrayed, falsely trialed, mocked, beaten, scourged, stripped naked, humiliated, fastened to a tree, spit upon and left to die. He is murdered. And three days later, he does what no king in history has ever done. He rises physically from the dead as king of the earth, given all authority and power. And he walks onto the scene of the ending pages of the gospel. And he says, peace unto you. That's it. No retribution, no violence, no war. Let me say that we are not waiting for Jesus to do something more radical in the future to make the future different than what he did in his resurrection. For there is nothing more powerful, no image more potent, more future changing than one of a God who became flesh was murdered and had the only true right and claim to take vengeance, wrath, and war, and he didn't take it, but forgave his enemies and said, peace to you. How blissful the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. This is what the principalities and powers did not understand, for they lacked the imagination for it. John 20 continues to go on further. Jesus says, And saying this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive a Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you let go, they are let go. 
And those you hold fast, they have been held fast. And I want you to hear those lines, not thinking of just the limited realm of individualism that we've learned, but think about nation forgiving nation, long rival tribes forgiving tribes, deep-seated racial ethnicities forgiving their oppressors. Because in it, the cycle of violence and vengeance and hatred and war is broken. How blissful the peacemakers, that they shall be called the sons of God. And I'll end with this statement. In the scripture, we have the narrative that ends the us and the them. Sorry, the us and them. We have a narrative that ends the exploitation of one people group over another. We have the narrative that closes the book on vengeance. We have the narrative that ends the reciprocal cycle of an eye for an eye. We have the narrative that ends war. We have the narrative that changes the future. We have the narrative that makes peace. We need just be faithful to it and project it out into our culture. In a moment, we're about to take communion. And as we come to the communion table today, I want you to see it, not as it has so tragically been portrayed by some, a meal of exclusivity and of separation. Rather see it with the world reimagined, the meal that all the nations will eat and drink of, as the line between us and them continues to disappear one by one, and there is only an us. Come to the table to eat the meal of the future. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.